Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, December 15th, 2019, we conclude our new mini-series titled Christmas Revealed. Today's sermon, The Resurrection of Christmas, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Luke chapter 2, verses 26 through 38. Enjoy. I wanted to ask you guys a question to start this off. You know, as we're going through Christmas Revealed and we're talking about this Advent, right? Advent, uh, as Thomas said to us a couple weeks ago, was uh, is understanding that Advent equals arrival or understand that it means coming. And so this Advent of the coming King, this Advent, I have to ask you the simple question. In this Advent, are you in fact ready for Christmas? It's not rhetorical. Are you in fact ready for Christmas? That's somewhat as, about as enthusiastic as I am, right? And so you do get caught up sometimes in the commercial Christmas, do you not? I mean, you walk through the malls, you walk through the different uh, places, and you hear songs about the weather. And it's hard not to think that sometimes maybe we're missing the point. And I think oftentimes we do miss the point of Christmas, and I'm hoping that today's scripture will reveal even more to you. But if you want to follow along, we're in Luke uh, 1, uh, verses 26 through 38. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern that sort of greeting, what that sort of greeting might this be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you as we dissect it this morning that you, your Holy Spirit, would work in our hearts to reveal even more about your Christmas and what it is about. And where is the advent of where we sit today? Help us, Lord, to grow in your grace and the knowledge of your Son. Amen. (coughs) So the revelation of Christmas. As we've been working through this three-part series in the advent of Christmas Revealed, What is the revelation of Christmas? Thomas, two weeks ago, spoke about the lineage of our Messiah. We spent months, 28 plus weeks, in looking at the book of Genesis and the patriarchs and all that have have preceded us. 
We saw that, as Thomas said, they were not ideal, but they were, in fact, real. They didn't really set the record on obedience, if you were a part of that series. But we see within the sovereignty of God, we see a plan. And the plan is going to be fulfilled whether or not we obey or not. That's the greatest news of all. That it, in fact, is not dependent upon you or me but it is dependent upon a holy God who will fulfill his plan. Bob last week said that Jesus' birth makes him, one, vulnerable, and two, historical, and three, real. It's why this morning we're starting off this understanding of the advent or the arrival or the coming as a revelation. And in this revelation, the first thing that I want you to see is, number one, it is a permanent reality. It's important for us to understand the permanence of Jesus Christ, the permanent reality. The Son of God did not take on any kind of human nature in his incarnation and then discard it at his ascension. Rather, he remains both God and man forever. The union of the human nature and the divine nature in the one divine person of the Son of God. And we must understand that this will, in fact, last forever. Jesus resides at the right hand of God the Father, where he resides in not only his divine nature of 100% God, but he also resides as 100% human, where he makes intercession for those who believe on him. It's important for us to understand that he is 100% God and 100% man. And the only way that this could take place is if the seed of the Holy Spirit were placed and conceived in the womb and the egg of a human. Jesus was then therefore born without sin. He wasn't conceived in sin. And in his humanity, it is a requirement that there would be a human that would actually satisfy the wrath that is due unto you and me. Psalm 49 tells us that there is no man on this earth that can fulfill this. So God incarnated himself. He came to this earth and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. We must never forget that 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, for there is no one, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It's important for us to understand that it's Christ Jesus, not Jesus the Christ. Because by saying Christ Jesus, what he's doing is he's pointing us to the preeminent Jesus, the God that was always promised from the very beginning. The one that was said that would ultimately come from the woman and would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise the seal. We see the fulfillment of God's plan. It leads us to this important thing that is oftentimes taken away today. And that is point two, a miraculous conception. We live in a society that has long since renounced the idea of miracles. But our text today shows us that the Son of God's incarnation took place via the Holy Spirit's work in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The historical event was foretold in history before it even happened. It was told 730 years before it even took place. In Isaiah 7.14 it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What an incredible sign. 
when a virgin conceives, hold on, because I'm coming. He says, therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, sh and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The text has been subject to a number of debates over the past 200 years or so. Although the virgin birth of Christ has always been a defining belief of Christian faith, it is often, in fact, received with this idea that it's narrow-minded. I have an eldest sister who loves to tell me that my Christian faith is incredibly narrow-minded. Every Thanksgiving, she goes from her atheistic position to an agnostic. And we repeat the cycle over and over again because she has never been able to come up with the evidence that there is, in fact, no God. But I always wonder how she can come to the conclusion that I'm, in fact, narrow-minded. I believe in a God who not only came to this earth, was born of a virgin, he walked on water. In the Old Testament, he parted the Red Sea. He caused the sun to go backwards. And I'm narrow-minded. We start to realize that there's more to this God than what we oftentimes attribute to him. The doctrine that has been under attack for since the 19th century is called anti-supernaturalism. It's this thought that, that God can't act in a supernatural way. He can't defy the very laws of physics or the laws of nature. And that science itself, an era of science, has brought a general response of population to feeling that there in fact can't in fact be a product of supernatural acts of God. The Old Testament, or I should say the New Testament, uses the term for the angel, make it plain to Joseph, and that the child in Mary's womb was not the product of infidelity. Mary's unexpected pregnancy was not due to her being with another man, rather it was the work of God himself. It's interesting that they take this word that's used in scripture, virgin, and many people even within Christian circles try to make this word into Mary was a young child. It's true that Mary was probably 13 to 14 years old when this took place. But the word that's being used here is the word parthenos. It's the word virgin in Greek. And what it means is one who has never engaged in sexual relations. That's it. It doesn't actually mean anything else. You can't come to a conclusion that, oh, well, Mary was just a young person. No, Mary was, in fact, a virgin, a person who had not ever engaged in any kind of a sexual relationship. Listen to the words that the angel gives to Joseph in Matthew 1.20 when he says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, not from another man. You see, so denying the virgin birth of Jesus therefore means denying an essential truth about the person of Jesus Christ. It means denying his incarnation. It means denying the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it leads us to start to wonder, what else am I missing in this text? What else am I just not seeing? 
Well, the part that we oftentimes glance over is the response or the actions. The third point is this, is when we observe the practical actions of the people and the angel that is involved here. How do they react? How do they respond? Are they believing that the Holy Spirit is gonna somehow miraculously come upon Mary and she will be with child? The first thing we notice in action is Mary has a troubled discernment. It says in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You can imagine if the angel suddenly appeared to you and starts to tell you what's gonna be happening and what's going on, that God has found favor with you. There might be this thought in all the histories passing down from generation to generation and understanding, right? That when the angel appears, there's a great thing that's going to take place or there's a really horrible thing that's about to take place. In fact, there's about five reasons why an angel will come and speak to you. All of them are because he's being sent by God. But the first reason an angel might come and talk to you is to give a message specifically from God. We saw this, of course, in Genesis 18 when God sent three men messengers to Abraham and Sarah to tell them that they would, in fact, bear a son. And of course, as Thomas taught, not ideal, but real, Abraham hears what God has to say and then proceeds to come up with some clever ways to bypass or shortcut God's plan. This is why the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar as she was laying watching her son Ishmael die in the desert. And she distanced herself. But the angel came to her and delivered a message specifically from God. The other reason might be to protect us. Many times, God sends angels to protect or guard and, uh, and, and fight for us. God tells us in Psalm 91 that he would give angels charge concerning us to guard us on all our ways. I remember as a, as a young boy um, growing up in the early 1970s, and I remember um, we played outdoors then. For those of you who didn't play outdoors, we played outdoors. And, uh, of course, you come to that age where you come up with all these great ideas as a young boy, where a trash bag becomes a perfectly acceptable parachute from the top of the roof. When you, in fact, come to these moments where you say, hey, let's free, let's free climb the cliff down the road. And so I remember climbing this cliff, and I was probably 100 or so feet up from the ground. It could be 20 feet, right, because it's a long time ago. But I'm up at the top of this cliff, and as I began to realize that the decomposed granite that I'm climbing is starting to give way, and my friends are yelling at me from above, you know, don't fall, don't fall, and of course that's helping, right? And you're panicking as you're on this cliff, and it literally felt like someone reached down and grabbed me by the back of my shirt and pulled me up onto the precipice of this little mountain. And I sat there as I'm coming, you know, I'm like, oh, Thanks, man, that was really close. And I look up and there's no one standing around me, but my friends are off in the distance running towards me. I don't have any explanation for that. I should have fall. I should have fell that day. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just narrow-minded. Maybe God does, in fact, have guardian angels for us. The other reason is to serve believers. Angels are often sent to serve believers. God sends angels to minister to those who hurt or need strength. 
There's probably a lot of people here today who are hurting and need strength. This may in fact be the first Christmas without a particular loved one. This may be a time of year where you remember the loss of a loved one. I want you to know and to understand that God loves you and he likes you. He has a plan. And oftentimes that plan doesn't meet with our objectives. But we see within the very nature of God that God in the Garden of Gethsemane sent to Jesus an angel in Luke twenty-two forty-three. He sent this angel from heaven for the sole purposes of strengthening the Son of God. To encourage him. Let me be here to encourage you this Christmas. Listen, as a brother or a sister, if you are hurting or you are dealing with some difficult things, I'm, I'm asking you right here, right now, send me an email. Stevens at highlandschurch.org. Let me minister to you. Let me love you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Call me. The church is here to minister and to share because we are under the plan of God, that we are here for one another. There's so many one another's throughout God's word to love one another, to be kind to one another, to confess our sins to one another. So many of these one another's that we oftentimes want to sit back and desperately wait for an angel to be sent when in fact it's possible that God has just simply sent the person on your left or your right. But nonetheless, God sends angels to serve believers, to strengthen them. Another is that he's sent to execute God's judgment. It's frightening to think that God can send an angel to exercise God's judgment. In 2 Kings verse 9, chapter 19, we see King Hezekiah prayed boldly to God, asking for his help against their enemies. The Assyrians were known for cruel ways they treat their captives. In verse 35 of 2 Kings 19, it says, That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men. That's our God. I'm sure that in doing this, he sent not only a message that came from God, he protected those that he had chosen to protect. He served those who believed, and God, in fact, did execute his judgment. There's a fifth reason that God sends angels, but I'm going to hold on to that for a second. I want to talk about Mary's question. Mary said to the angel in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? You know, we can ask God questions And oftentimes we ask him questions with disbelief or doubt. This is not the case for Mary. Mary is actually asking an inquiry, a question. She truly wants to know, hey, I'm in. How is this going to be? I'm a virgin. For many of us, you may want to insert your own circumstances. How is God going to possibly be glorified this season when I can't get past the loss of a loved one. Maybe, in fact, you're wrestling with all kinds of things in life. How am I going to be able to pay for Christmas? How will I possibly afford to buy gifts for my children? 
How will I give them the Christmas that I had as a child? But maybe I'm hoping that your how is not that of disbelief, but is that of, just show me, Lord. I'm here to serve and to follow you. You see, how will this be since I am a virgin, she says. Leads us to this third part where you have such angelic clarity. In verse 35, the angel answered her. You can tell by the response that he gave her that it wasn't because of disbelief, because he sincerely answers her question, specifically how this will be. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, right? John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Listen to this. Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. We've seen in Genesis Sarah being 100 years old and not having a child, but God saying, I'm going to bring a child. These stories have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Mary would have been keenly aware of these stories that there's going to be a sign that a woman will conceive and be a virgin, and she's being told, you're that person. You've heard these stories, you're that person. But what the angel wants to get across is that there's also one that was also planned, and his name is John the Baptist, and he's gonna prepare the way for the Son of God. And he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is just God showing off. I'm all powerful. I'm all knowing. Nothing will escape my plan. My purposes will always prevail. Nothing will be impossible. Nothing has changed from the Old Testament to the present tense. God is still in charge, working all things to the glory of his plan. And we see in these stories about Mary as well as Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, in Luke 1. You can read the totality of that later, but there's striking similarities that are going on here between Mary and Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband. Because the similarities are that both are visited by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1, verse 19, and verses 26 and 27. Both are promised the miraculous birth of a son in verse 13 and in verse 31. Both are equally not supposed to have a child. Zechariah's wife is barren and elderly, and Mary is a virgin. Both respond with equal perplexity. How? One indication that Luke is intentionally trying to compare Zechariah and Mary is that he is bothered to list these parallels at all. He didn't have to mention them. Matthew didn't in his gospel, but Luke does, and by drawing them out, he prepares us to see Zechariah and Mary's substantial contrasts. There's two major contrasts. Number one, Zechariah is a law-abiding married old man and a temple priest. Mary is a young and obscure single woman. One contrast is Zechariah's speech was taken literally from uh, his mouth. He was made mute. He was made dumb. 
And he was going to remain dumb. He was going to remain without speech until John the Baptist would be born. As a consequence for how he didn't believe. When we in fact consider the first contrast, Zechariah's credentials would seem to commend him as more likely a recipient of God's grace. How often we find ourselves looking to the pastors or the priests, understanding that Zechariah was a law keeper. He was a man and he was an old, old like Abraham and he was married. Mary, on the other hand, appears to have far less going for her. She was a woman in a cultural era that was not greatly respected. She is young. She holds no titles or positions in the community, and she has no husband as of yet. Even as a society today, we would look at some people and say, certainly God is smiling upon them. And we would look to someone as lowly as Mary and say, maybe one day. But in fact, we start to look at these contrasts. In Mary's case, However, Luke leaves it to Elizabeth to be the one to tell her why she's not mute. But look at why Zechariah is told, right? Gabriel is going to say to him, the angel makes it clear that he silenced him because, in Luke 1.20, he did not believe my words, which will be the fulfillment in their time. Zechariah simply didn't believe. Whereas Mary, in Luke 1.45, Elizabeth, now get in mind that this is at Elizabeth and Zechariah's home, and Zechariah is sitting there, he can't speak. And so Mary comes to visit, and as Mary comes in, it is Elizabeth who says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You can't help but sit there and think that maybe Elizabeth was saying, right in front of Zechariah, who's mute, right? Saying, Elizabeth believed. (laughs) The very reverent priest sat in silence as a consequence of his disbelief. But look at Mary's response in verse 38. You've just been told that you are in fact the one that was prophesied 730 years before that a woman shall conceive and this is the sign of the entrance of the Son of God, the very one that we've been waiting for, God among us, God with us. You've just been told this. You've asked one innocuous question of how. But she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Just like that. God said it. She believes it. That settles it. Remember that old bumper sticker? Let me just change that bumper sticker a little bit. God said it. That settles it. The word of God does not require my or your belief to be true. And God came and he said to Mary that she will carry the Son of God, the one that would be called holy. She expresses her obedience and faith. She recognizes her role to be the servant of the Lord and desires to obey Him and to submit to Him in all ways. She says, let it be according to your word. She affirmed what the angel said should be her role in God's plan. She earnestly desired it. She firmly believed it. 
and she believed that it would be. In a sense, what Mary said was amen to the angel's message. I'm all in. Oh, to respond to our Savior with such obedience of such a grand task. The fifth reason why God sends angels to come and speak to us is to give praise and worship. To praise and worship God. Angels are mighty beings of praise and worship unto God. Revelation 4.8 says, day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You see, that is both the, that is the past, who was, who is the present, and is to come the future. The past, present, and the future Christmas. You see, the revelation is just simple. Mary, in a time, in a period of time where God had been silent for over 400 years, the angel is speaking to her exactly what he's going to do in the fulfillment of his plan. The prophecy that he laid hundreds of years, 730 years before Jesus was even born. Mary becomes that one, and in obedience, she immediately turns to him and says, you say it, I'll do it. Whatever you ask, I am your servant. So maybe in this Christmas season, as we wrestle in the Advent, we must first recognize that Jesus was the one to come. That was Mary in their Advent. Jesus is the one that came, is not only Mary's Advent, but you and mine Advent as well. We get to sit on this side of, of God's coming and dwelling amongst us. We get all the advantages of knowing who the Messiah is, not the Messiah who is to come. But I hope that what Christmas reveals to you is this simple truth. Jesus is the one to come again, the second advent. Christ is coming back again. And in this Christmas, we have to ask ourselves, are we ready? I started off by asking, are you ready for Christmas? If you understand what Christmas is, Christmas is going to be our advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming back for his own and those who believe in him. He's coming with all of the angels that will lay the announcement and sound the trumpets as he comes back. And as he takes all the saints that have gone before him and all the saints that are here and he places us in a glorified body with him and we come to judge the quick and the dead. Those that have placed their faith in him, it creates an urgency within us to look to Christ and live. So this Christmas is that much as we take time to reflect and remember the Christ who came, never, never lose sight of the Christ who is coming. I pray that this God comes today. I am ready. When I look at our society and the mess that it is, I pray, Lord, come, come quickly. Take us to your home. Take us to the place where we want to be in an eternal state where we practice the presence of God for all eternity. Where there is no more tears. There is no more crying. There is no more pain. There is no more lost ones. Mark 13, 27 through 37 says, and then 
He will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And, I want to, to, I, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Be on alert, because the Son of Man is coming again, and today may be it. We must live in the advent of his preeminent and his imminent return. Because Jesus said this is a part of his plan. As he departed from us, he will surely return. May the advent of this Christmas find you awake and ready for him to return. Are we ready for the advent of Christmas? May we model his grace and his love the way that he did for us. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship and adore you. We know that you are holy, holy, holy. We know that you are God with us. We wait here with great anticipation of your imminent return. May this Christmas find us in that hope that we wouldn't be caught up in our circumstances but like Mary, we would be willing to step forward and serve as you served. May we live in a world that doesn't condemn because you didn't come to condemn. May we live out the model of your grace, your kindness, your tenderheartedness. And may we forgive through God as Christ has forgiven us. Help us, Lord, now to sing praise to you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Today, if God has put it upon your heart to just simply come alongside a brother or sister here down in front or those that are here to pray with you, to minister to you, I beg of you to please take me up on my offer to reach out and let, let me, let the pastors, let the church body minister to you. If you're in a time of great agony, great difficulty as you're going through this Christmas season, I ask that you would remind yourself that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, for he is coming back for his, and we must look to him with great anticipation. To God be the glory. Yes. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.